Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Udang dhammang sangang namasami So when we attend, give attention to to the Dhamma, to to the teachings, as well as the experiences we have, the realizations we have, helps us to uh, visit certain kind of values and themes and what are called parami, parami of perfections or transcending virtues, virtues that take us um, out of ourself, out of our run around, out of our world, out of our habits, out of our attitudes, out of our assumptions, kind of you know, uh, these these are called perfections. They also means word parami. Also, has this feeling of going beyond or furthering. Mm. You know, and so it's an enormous. Uh, uh, it's a very useful thing to keep co- considering. There are actually ten parami. I won't go into all of them, but uh, so it's uh, the. Uh, with these barami, the, the uh, salient feature of them is that you, you practice them all, all the time. They're not just meditations, though they, they reach their fullness. Their full effect is only fully experienced in meditation, but you practice them all the time. And it helps you to come out of this idea that Dhamma practice is just kind of sitting still and going quiet and, and uh, being on your cushion all the time, which is really... Uh, uh, very narrow way of looking at Dhamma practice and it's a bit kind of irritating when people come to monasteries and say you know there's not much time to practice here you know because I only get my three hours of meditation a day something like that or I want to do more practice which generally means be on my own sit still try and make my mind empty you know and yeah that's that's part of it but it's uh um, pretty, uh, you know, how much, how long, how much you can do that for, you know? And in some some Buddhist traditions, they even think, you know, well, doing that's a bit sort of like, oh yeah, well that's okay, that's for kids. But if you really want to go places, you develop parami, <laughs> which means you develop things like patience and uh, energy and uh, wisdom, and kindness and. Uh, Generosity, you know, to, to a huge degree, you know, so this really ups, ups your credentials, you know, and then it's not the practice is not just a kind of being a bit calm and quiet, but actually just really strengthening and, and these, these great virtues. So you're doing enormously generous in terms of your time, your efforts, and they're all about kind of giving yourself up or moving outside of your, uh, your normal standards or your comfort zones or things you feel 
um, habituated to and making a bigger effort, you know, um, more energy or more being more patient, you know, patient to sort of like, like five star patients, you know, being clear, discernment, wisdom is a barami. Mm-hmm. Resolution is a barami. Commitment, you know, making a resolve and staying with it is a barami. And equanimity, even-mindedness is a barami. And they're kind of like deliberate intentions you set up. So when you're practicing like that, when you're going through the day, you're just developing a sense of well, whatever's arising, and be patient with that. You get a sense of uh, um, not letting my mind get caught up in negativity. You know? So non-aversion. You know, when things can be extremely irritating and disappointing, infuriating, and uh, things of this nature, just you can feel that kind of wave hit you, and you say, "No, I'm not going to do, not going to go that way." So, it's uh, when we recognise this, it gives you quite a good map of practice, where you can see these kind of floods and forces that it's so easy to, and compelling and reasonable to go along with. You know, people are unpleasant and nasty. You feel, oh, you know, you feel irritation. Pretty normal, isn't it? But uh, we're not trying to be normal or reasonable or justified. We're trying to get beyond these, uh, th- this kind of this way of looking at things to really becoming someone trackless, traceless, not just you know beyond birth and death, realization, nibbana. So it's you know we're not looking at a bit of stress reduction or having being calm or having some nice friends. Those are fine, but. Uh, you know, making more of it, and it is a, it's a this when you get this kind of perspective on it, and you, you just kind of see how you how what's coming up is pushing you, and you make a stand against that. Check it out. Don't get duped. Don't get fooled by the emotional currents, the praise, the blame, the. Uh, you know, the blandishments, the, the enticements of of what rolls in, yeah? Because these are the Buddha likened these, these to floods. They're like things that just we can sweep along in the current, get swept along. And he said, actually, this is what happens for a lot of people without training, without having some, some uh, guidelines. We just get swept along. With happiness, unhappiness, praise, blame, success, failure, just roll along in it. You know? And so, but it's kind of like, you know, like being a bit of a dead fish, really, just, <laughs> you know, just flow with it. And, uh, you know, where does it go to? So the perspective on Parami is really a very big length very wide lens, where, where is it going? Where are we going? Yeah? We're all, one way we're all going to the grave, we're all going to death. Um, where are we going? You know? We're going just to passing the time, getting by, feeling okay, you know, is, is, that, is, that, is that it? Yeah. So one of the... the Constant reflections on on Buddha and Dhamma is that there's more, you know, there's a, there's a lot better 
that we could that we can arrive at. But it's like crossing this flood, crossing this stream. And the Baramiya are the, are the values and the virtues that take you, make you stand in that stream without getting swept along in it, and then you can you can get across it. Yeah. And there are certain things to bear in mind that, that we say that all of them are really their, their aspects of wisdom, or they're under, they're, they're, they're backed up by wisdom. If it doesn't make you more clear or discerning, it's not a barami, it's not a vert, it's not a perfection, it's just an attitude or an ideology. <laughs> so you take something, renunciation, and you can be a stupid renunciant, which just means kind of like, like an ascetic. Uh, or, or taking pride in renunciation, or giving up things that are just showing off, you know, like, look what I can do without. This is just stupid renunciation. A wise renunciation is seeing really clearly, this is where I'm trying to, acknowledging, hey, this is where I'm trying to make a big show of myself, this is where I'm trying to prove myself, this is where I'm trying to be the best, best, most austere person in town. Hey, it's, I don't need this, you know, this kind of self identification so the main things that we we work against are the sense of building up our our egos our sense of self our pride um, our sensual appetites our opinion our opinionatedness our tendency to form views and judgments is very enticing you know get on your soapbox have a rant it's all feel really good about it you know, you have the whole culture now of the blogosphere where anybody can now rant and, <laughs> and feel that they have that their opinions, they want everybody to hear it. You've got a kind of rantocracy. <laughs> Freedom, fair speech, have my say. You know? And, uh, you know, 20,000 people can hear it. It's a, it's a big deal, you know. <laughs> everybody can be famous. Whatever view. Everybody can set everybody else straight. So this is a, this is a, an, an, an enticing thing for human beings, because it's so we get a certain position, a certain sense of bit puffed up, because you know I'm going to set everybody else straight. Uh-huh. So the, these these currents, views, sensuality, identification, and ignorance, which is this, which is this uh, ignoring or not seeing or really not recognizing these currents. Where are we going? Where is it taking us to? Is it taking us to more rigidity, more? Uh, Less honesty, less self-revelation. You know, we have views about everybody else, but we don't actually reveal ourselves. You know, there's no humility, there's no modesty, there's no sense of what well, I, you know, I make mistakes too, or you know, that's what you you can get off on on having views about everybody else because you don't have to point the finger at yourself. But this is a very um, 
clear direction. Nobody's here to set anybody else straight. We're here to use these teachings humbly, with recognition that the only one we possibly could set straight is this one who's speaking. <laughs> There's some chance of that. <laughs> it's not that great, but there's some chance of that. As <laughs> to anybody else. You know, you may, pennies may drop, <laughs> things may get triggered off, but uh, if you can't set yourself straight, <laughs> your chance of setting anybody else straight. <laughs> and then you, so it's always that, that mirror of one's, one's uh, pride or one's conceit or that we want to keep looking at. This is what the Buddha is encouraging us to do. You know, so we look at what is it that spins spins us out into judging everyone else. Or what is that? We get we get affected by everyone else. We get affected by things. We want to be approved of by other people. We want to look good. We want to look we're right and clean and with it and cutting edge and stuff like that. And, and actually, you know, there's a Theravada Buddhist already in a, in a sticky wicket because it's a pretty old fuddy-duddy kind of school of antiquated behaviours. So this is not a great new gleaming uh, chrome-plated new age <laughs> way of thinking. It's <laughs> We're looking at the last the last thing that happened that was interesting was like 500 BC. <laughs> Some people think it's 400 BC, so it could be. <laughs> We're still catching up with that. <laughs> still trying to catch up with what the Buddha was saying. And anything, anything more. And most of us haven't caught up with it yet, <laughs> to be frank. Hmm. So we can have doubts about it. Of doubts about ourselves. Results, goals. Is Nibbana the same as non dualism? Is the path really a kind of sublime form of love? Are all religions pointing the same way? Is, is one religion better than the others? Is there an easier way that I could do it? Or a way that more fits me, more new, new, beneficial way. Yeah. Or is it truly only Buddhism's the only way? I don't want to say Buddhism's the only way because that makes me sound like a bigot. But, you know. but then if I think everybody's got it right, why am I bothering to do this? I keep looking around at everyone else's system. I'm going to just get confused. So no, this is the only way. And this is when we look, look at, when we take these teachings as external things. You can look at things the Buddha said or things that uh, other teachers have said and start a- adding them up and which one's the best one, the new one, the right one, the brightest one, the clearest one, the most appropriate one. And it's still looking externally. And, you know, just words and ideas and so on. 
And with everything that you look at, you just want to see what it's doing to your mind, what you can make use of, how you can work against opinionatedness, conceit, um, dogmatism, how you can work against these, how you can develop something that's really taking you beyond, beyond your yourself. And that often means it's inse- uncertain, insecure. If it was, if it was, if it is something that really is take, you know, taking to a new place, it would be something that takes you, takes you through uncertainty. Because if it's all certain and figured out, it's not anywhere new, is it? It's just a piece of safe territory. And it, there's this sense of danger and risk to it. Uh, we have to leave something behind. This is what renunciation is about in its deepest sense. You have to leave behind the known. You have to leave behind the safety. You have to leave behind the feeling of, of uh, getting it all right. You have to go beyond that into something that's new and you're not quite certain of. And then there's a kind of freshness if you, if you really see the value of that. <clears throat> if you have to be certain and, and sure before you can practice, well, really don't bother. Because <laughs> it... You know, because it isn't practice if it isn't uncertain. It's just going through the motions of of bolstering oneself up with another, you know, form or token or or system or uniform or ism to make one feel a little more secure. This is about radical insecurity, because any one of the, any religion or form or system. You can colonize it. Your ego can colonize it as something that gives me some firm ground. This is what I am. I'm one of these. I'm on the right team. I'm better than those lot. And this isn't what it's about. It's about using using teachings and themes to look into you, how your mind is working. Learn to let go of the intellectual security or the emotional comfort. And and why? Because there's something better, brighter, braver, bigger that we can find. But first of all, we don't know what it is. We really don't know what it is. If you knew what it is, it wouldn't be the real thing. It's already imagined. So there's courage, you know, faith is needed. So you start to really revisit some of these assumptions we have about our lives, about being a human being. Really, and though we may, you know, imagine it's being convinced, I would say authentic Dharma practice always has this sense of uncertainty to it. And this is what, you know, to move into uncertainty take makes you stronger. Stronger and less uh, bound in one's ideas. One of the most, um, you know, a very, it's very easy to misunderstand some of these, uh, these um, teachings. And the, one of the things that the equanimity, which is considered to be the, in many ways, it means it's, Funny because a word like equanimity doesn't sound that that uh, big a deal, but equanimity is the tops. <laughs> as far as we can go in terms of uh, 
definable things, and equanimity is 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 uh, you know that's that's the best, because <laughs> you can see that it, it for a start it doesn't mean indifference. That stupid equanimity. So you see your foot house falling down, you go well, it's so impermanent. That's called stupid equanimity. <laughs> stupid. <laughs> You know, but what you can do is see that the you know experience that sense of panic or fear or uncertainty, see, and just not get moved by that. You know, feel those respect, feel those reactions and responses. Let them pass through you, and then see what you can do from that. So equanimity is just the quality that acts as the check on our our fearfulness, our impulsiveness, our elation, our dejection immediate contact reactions that we get to things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the sense just that you're able to hold a space through which powerful feelings can flow. It doesn't mean you don't feel anything. It means you've got a big bag that the feelings can just be held in. And then because of that, then you come to somewhere beyond that, those immediate feelings. You know? All of us have our minds basically are fed by or work in terms of feelings and perceptions, feelings of pleasure, pain. Perceptions are things like, uh, you know, how things strike us as agreeable, disagreeable, terrible, frightening, wonderful, um, powerful, lovely, and all these sorts of um, impressions that we have, you know. And that's what, that's how we navigate. We generally navigate as best we can towards those agreeable ones. And, and shift away from the uncomfortable, fearful, you know, dreary ones. They don't like that. But that's that's the system that happens, you know, that's what we can that's all conditioned. And uh, the mind by itself, if it's not developed and cultivated, will always tend towards you know, the comfortable, the agreeable, I will, sure, you know, comfortable, the agreeable, the pleasant, the popular, that's where it's going to go, comfort zones. Just then we can kind of pad them out a bit and add new things to them. But that's what, that's what, that's the territory that we want to move past. Can't get beyond that. Uh, and equanimity is the ability to experience uh, the challenge that occurs when our, our when we uh, get powerfully moved by elation or by dejection. Just, you know, he's praising you and he's mm-hmm. he's blaming you. Mm. Doesn't mean you don't know what's going on. You don't care. But you recognize this is not the time to start getting reactive. This is not the time to start getting reactive. There's another quality of intelligence that can come through rather than just this domain of perception and feeling which is just given to us by nature and built up by social conditioning. So it really enables one's wisdom, one's discernment faculty to come not just from this reactive place, but from an, another place, a stronger place.
remember one of the nuns uh, when she went forth. She was been uh, uh, she was Swiss and she'd been a had a marriage and uh, it's a very pleasant, agreeable kind of life. You know, husband, children. She's, I think she's in her fifties. So everything's all right. She, she's okay. Switzerland's a very comfortable country. Everything works. Everything's clean. Everything runs on time. Don't do wars. Tucked away in the mountains. <laughs> well, there's loads of money shoved under the Alps and bank accounts. <laughs> Not too many people. <laughs> Great. And uh, so she was in a situation where it was all sorted, actually. And she uh, sensed, hmm, there's nothing wrong except it, you know, it's too good. <laughs> this isn't, I'm not developing anything in this. This isn't taking me beyond this. And she was curious because there's nothing wrong apart from it's uh, it's just getting by. And I think she started to prick up her ears and listen around. So she, then she decided she'd go forth as a nun. And this was a big, big decision. And it was a decision that was a very painful decision. Because she had no animosity. She wasn't fed up with her, her life, per se. But it just wasn't going any further. It was just going to be more of the same. Another day with things arrived on time and the clocks worked and the food was there and the telly worked and everything. You know, central heating was all done. Another day of this. You know, this is as good as it gets. And that, you know, you go with that until you die. Yeah. So, it was this, and so she was, you know, it was quite a challenge for her. Because naturally people say, what have we done wrong? Oh, you're leaving, you're letting us down. You know, my mother, going away, leaving us behind. And all this. But she decided this is what she had to do. So naturally all these powerful feelings and perceptions arising in the mind of loyalty and family and responsibility and so on and Normal, you know what normal Swiss housewives do. <laughs> they don't shave their heads and go and live in crazy places like this, and chanting and bowing and all that sort of stuff. But she did it, and she did the first few months. She just used to cry. Almost every day, she'd she'd cry for months. She just cry, and then one day she said. Just thought, enough of that. You know, it was like the same thing. You can stay in that sorrow, and in fact, it never ends. If you like, you know, if you come to your sorrow place, you can be there forever. It's like we all have these places in ourselves, don't we? The wronged. We can go to our place we've been wronged, and the victim. And the only thing the victim does is tell stories. Tells the same story about how it's been wronged. 
to anybody and everybody forever. <laughs> you know, they did me down. They did me a wrong deal. You know, I was wronged. That's what the victim does. You know, or we can stay in our I've been misunderstood bit, or we can stay in our sorrow and grief and bereavement bit. And any one of these kind of conditioned states, you can just stay in. It's not as if it's that comfortable or that pleasant, but it's mine. (laughs) It really helps me know who I am with my history and my importance and my feelings and my life and, you know, this and the other. Stay in there, chewing it over like a dog, chewing a bone that's had less and less meat on it, but you still keep chewing it. And she just saw that. Okay, you know, you can keep grieving. It's it's allowable and it's understandable. But there's a time when you say, enough. Enough of that. You know, this isn't going anywhere. This is just, in fact, affirming my history. And we want to move out of history. Out of the past. And even out of the future. Out of the past is difficult enough. Moving out of the future is even more difficult because we want to have a future. <laughs> and there isn't one. <laughs> and every one of us knows that for a moment. You know, when you say, geez, yeah. But then somebody says, yeah, but you know, but Thursday I'm going to so and so and what's going to happen when I'm 75 and, uh, you're going to pay the rent by next week and the dog's not looking so well. And it comes in again. Yeah, I've got a future. It's all full of problems and exciting things and uncertainties. It's there. Where? Where is it? You have no future. You can imagine. Right now you can imagine a future. You can conceive of it. You can plan it. You can dread it. You can worry it. But there isn't. There is no future. You know, the, very, the is, the word is, is a present tense. The present tense has no future to it, right? It doesn't exist. And yet, you know, we want to be sure that in the future we'll be okay. I'm not investing in the wrong thing for the future. And that's a very powerful, this is part of this identification, this what's called bhava, one of the great floods, having a future. When I became a monk, then the first thing my mother said, well, what's going to happen to you when you're old? If you're a monk, you're going to have a pension. You're going to pay your NHS stamps. And I was 27 years old. 26 years old, so future. And she's right. Now I'm 60. Well... You know, what happens when I'm too, too far gone to give Dhamma talks? They're going to chuck me out. Begging on the streets of Midhurst with a little tin cup in my hand. <laughs> Could be. Yes, very polite. Sorry about this, Ajahn, but, you know, we had a meeting, the Sangha got together, and really, you know, <coughs> monastery, we really like to have people who are in good shape, you know, could train, teach others. There's not so much room here, so we thought perhaps you'd like to, um, you know, 
move on somewhere. And it's very nice. We know a very good uh, street corner you can stand on. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> we came to a Sangha decision on this. <laughs> and we're giving you a week notice. <laughs> Could be. You know, so you see the future dread, insecurity, or plan. But you see, just where does the mind come to? To all that stuff stop? All that stuff let you go? Let you go of reaching forth? Let you go of reaching out? Let you go of uh, let go, let you out of that creation? You see, when you develop the barami, say okay. Whatever arises, we can meet that with patience and with effort, with discernment, with equanimity. Strengthen yourself now. Strengthen yourself now. That's what you can do. That's what we have to do. Equanimity, you you develop it in in, uh, meditation through two fundamental um, themes of meditation you could say themes is one of a better word one is the we say the actual um, quality of mind or chitta which means that the the mind's ability to be um, almost like a almost like a substance now you notice when you get rattled your mind seems very fragile jumps around and is knocked around and it seems like a twittering thing your mind can feel like a very heavy thing, oppressed, burdened. It can feel bouncy and joyful. It can feel skittish. It can fly. It can gurgle. It can drown. It can go down. You know. So this this is almost like an energetic substance to it. And so this is one thing. When we develop meditation, we make the mind firm, not rigid, but but firm. But a sense of it has its own gravity, its own poise, its own strength. This is through the practice of samatha, calming, steadying the mind. So it doesn't shake easy. It doesn't panic easy. It doesn't get knocked around easy. It's, it's not flimsy. It's got a certain solidity. You can feel things, you can sense things, you can feel pleasure and pain. And there's something there that stays about the same. You know? This we develop in meditation. You know? Through the process of, of fee, feeling into your body, feeling into your mind, and uh, calming and steadying, so the whole nervous system, the whole of your nervous system becomes rich and and uh, internalized. Mostly, of course, our, our our consciousness is turned to external phenomena, sights, sounds, touches, thoughts, impressions, memories, which are you know, either external in the sense of actually happening out there you know, through, the, through the eyes, or external in its things that come into the mind like thoughts and memories, which are actually still floating across the top, you might say. They're just things that scudder, shudder across the top of the mind rather like 
ripples on a lake, thoughts and memories. So they're actually, even though they're internal in some ways, they're external to the mind. And normally we're very much hooked up to all that, to what we see, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, uh, opinions, views, other people's stuff, and our own thoughts and memories. And so those are always shifting around, aren't they? So you're just kind of zipping around. Um, there's not a lot of steadiness in that. You know, with uh, when we first thing we develop in this first aspect of meditation is really turning the, the, our attention inwards, is putting aside the sense its sense faculties, in, and putting aside thoughts and turning inwards to this quality of knowing. It's a knowing, again, knowing is not such a great word because it seems to mean cogitation. We could say awareness or mindfulness or something of this nature. So you have your thoughts and you can acknowledge that thought as a passing thing. You have your feelings, you can acknowledge the feeling as passionate or miserable. It's like that, it just runs through. And you can acknowledge a quality there that is not that that is witnessing it or open to that or experiencing that, but is not that. You might say this, you could say, is the inner aspect of mind. And as you come into that, say grounding yourself in your body, feeling your breathing, so on these meditation systems that are taught with that theme of how to find this sense of an inner unity, an inner uh, ground. And this is called process of samadhi, concentration or unification. You, get, you dwell in that. Um, it seems to be this kind of almost like a, a presence that you can experience, a sense of unity. Um, and it's it's comfortable and it's 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 quite uh, pleasant. But its main feature is it doesn't doesn't run around, doesn't move. Yeah. So because of this, you become more equanimous to all the stuff that's coming and going. Another day, another thought, another feeling. Another, yeah, so here's, here's this unified state. The other stuff is running past it. And you cultivate that. And this is one of the things we do. So you get this equanimity towards diversity. Yeah. Towards diversity. The other kind of way we cultivate equanimity in meditation or come to this place of equanimity, because if you try to be equanimous, it's generally a fake thing. <laughs> it's like trying to look cool. You, you arrive there through experiencing the ups and downs fully and finding a place. You, know, you travel through that territory of up and down. You don't suddenly get equanimous and right? slap it on. You, you arrive there through handling all the stuff that throws you around. Um, so that's wise equanimity. That's, that's you know real, realized, not fake equanimity. Um, traveling through the world of change and feeling. The other way is also developed in meditation. It's called the banya or, or wisdom faculty, and this is similar, but with this we're, we're more consciously focusing on the, the the changing nature of what affects us. So maybe you've got this sense of an inner stability and you keep noticing there's a thought that's getting wound up, there's getting excited, there's getting happy, comes and goes and changes, comes and goes and changes, comes and goes and changes. You keep 
noticing that, both in an obvious sense, you know, obviously times change, energies change, and then more subtly, attitudes, experiences of how I feel myself as being competent or incompetent, liked or disliked, that's shifting and changing. And you see that as you keep that focus up, you realize there's absolutely nothing that you can put your finger on that is solid or substantial. It's all of that nature. And yet, if we don't look at that, then what happens is that certain patterns, certain psychologies just get repeated so many times it seems solid because we keep running it. We keep rerunning our history and our attitudes. Hmm? So, you know, this sense of, of... really recognizing impermanence does require this quality of concentration or samadhi so that you've got something that's you don't go out into running on all those stories you've got something else so impermanence though it's a very easy concept and take quite facile but actually, as a realization, it's, it's very profound because some things do seem pretty much permanent or lasting, or here we are again. But it really means what's happening is we, we've nodded off onto that one and we just something just keeps rerunning our story, our, our history, our defilement, our this is who I am. So it's rather like a record. We put it back on again. Something puts it back on again. Something puts it back on again. So it seems permanent, but it's not permanent, it's just repeated. <laughs> and and we, sometimes we just don't know how to take, take it off, how to switch the thing off. You, know, you get irritated with it, fed up with it, disappointed with it, annoyed with it. Try this, try that. But the thing that is really important is to become equanimous to it. So there's less of that irritation, anger, elation, despair, it, then the, the quality of equanimity you know, is like self-acceptance. And that means you start to see honestly, without any bias, without any blame, without any judgment, without any, here she goes again. Uh-huh. And that, as the, that, if you develop that sense of, here she goes again, here I go again. Uh-huh. And it becomes this less and less story to it. Then the reruns get less, less powerful, and they fade out. This is where equanimity is so helpful and challenging, because one does get, uh, you know problems and disappointed by it and then naturally when we, we're met with a challenge with a doubt with a worry with an anger with a craving and so forth something oh stop it or go away or what have I done wrong I should be like this or, you know, or we play with it one more time you know something likes to play with it I'm going to get even with him one day you know jealous spiteful thing we believe in it because it's got energy in it. It's just, just look at that one. Here she goes. Here he goes again. Here he goes again. So a sense of 
equanimity has no particular judgment apart from it doesn't have a judgment it's not even trying to get rid of anything and even with uh, the equanimity that comes from this panya or discernment faculty which is called insight wisdom is even the sense of feeling solid and concentrated and so forth is also something that's just going to change so we get equanimous about our unity and our singularity and our strength it's just I've been lucky good deal great you know some place I could do this but still not it's just that it's just something that's been created formed not bad but you can't you don't want to make something out of it Mm. it's called um, you find the equanimity in terms of unity and we uh, the mind can come to this place of what's called a tamayata which means not making anything not not making anything out of anything just there's no additions there's no this, this inner sense of the mind running out and grabbing something as a, oh, I got one of those, or, oh dear, that's good, that's bad, I, I'm this, I'm that. The mind running out and acquiring things. And this is equanimous too. This is all pretty, you know, pretty deep or seemingly very high stuff but a lot of the time we're dealing with these uh, um, this, this, this sense of, of uh, naming ourselves our future, who we are uh, uh, trying to build up a reasonable reputation be worthwhile, do the right thing um, you know, which is not bad but you can see how neurotic you can get with it <laughs> you know you try and do something that everybody's going to say yes to everybody's going to be pleased by it it's going to be a winner It goes in waves. I remember there's uh, some years ago, this uh, kind of news of the world felt, I think it was news of the world, one of these tabloid mag- newspapers thought they'd decide they were going to have a moral campaign and they were going to name every paedophile in Britain. Shame them out, name them. Disgusting. Disgusting people, paedophiles, you know. So they started doing this. And of course, then people's took it upon themselves to become vigilantes and were going out beating people up and burning people's cars and smashing windows and things like that. <laughs> you know, moral outrage. So the you know, great British public got a nasty dose of righteousness and it's uh, 
Let's be careful when people go on a moral crusade, because the, uh, uh, the sense of a, the empathy and the compassion is lost. Do mean do you think that, that pedophiles are good people? Or no, I don't. I think it's uh, you know, fortunately, it hasn't. Yeah, it hasn't something's happened to me. I've neither been abused nor ever done it. I haven't had the inclination that way. Great, thank you very much. You know, imagine if if your mind gets twisted like that, if you get bent like that, if it happens like that. Yeah. So what should we do? Burn them? And then look at look at our own stuff, our own lusts and malice and pettiness and greediness. Mm. Who's got the right to start judging everyone? Sorting everyone else out. Just to feel a, a sense, some sense of uh, gratitude and humility. Thank I hadn't actually killed anybody. Well, I mean, probably you know, when you're 18 or so, you have a few drinks and get in a fight. You could easily, as a man, you could easily kill someone. It hasn't happened to me. Great. That means that I haven't had to go to jail and do this, that, and the other. I could have done. Not because I'm a particularly violent person, but you realize human beings have these energies in them. We can do these things. We can lose control. We can get swept away by stuff. So this self-acceptance is not saying everything's fine, but just being able to put, put your stuff out on your own table and look at it unflinchingly, without congratulations, and without, you know, flinching. Just looking at it like that. Mm-hmm. This is this. And then cause and effect. Like if you do this, it's going to take you there. Right? Let's be clear about this. Just then, you know, presenting like that. And it's, it's a very helpful tool. I remember a friend of mine who was a addictive type. So, uh, and he, I think he was taking, started taking um, some kind of pills for um, sleeplessness, I think it was, or depression. And these were happy pills. Well, technical name. So he started to take more of them. And he started to fiddle his prescription to get even more. So he was getting all these these drugs for, for free off the doctors and they were illegally kind of cheating on his prescriptions. He was taking his stuff to get stoned, basically. And uh, he was doing all this and, and he couldn't, he realised what he was doing, but he couldn't stop himself. That's what addiction's like. He just couldn't stop. And he knew he was going in for big trouble one day, but he just couldn't stop it, you know. It's like that with things like watching porn or drinking or stuff like that you just get you can't stop you know something you know and there's his wife you know who didn't 
criticize or blame or get heavy. She just said, look, I want this to be clear, you know, not going to chuck you out, not going to put you... If you keep doing this, this is where it's going to go. Just now, really take responsibility for that. If you keep doing this, this is what it's going to take you. It's going to take you. Where does it take you in yourself? Yeah. Does it take you anywhere you really want to go in yourself, or do you have to be, keep being furtive and deceitful and uh, losing self-respect? You can do that. It takes you to there. It's also going to take you sooner or later. You're going to get copped. It's going to take you to jail. Now you can do that. Yeah, if you want, that's what you can do. That's where it's going. Yeah. Or you can you can turn it the other way. It's your choice. And the beauty of that sense of the the just equanimity is you 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 realise, or it's basically a sign of immense respect that underneath our craziness there is a fundamental innate wisdom that knows what's right but if you just start reacting and blaming and justifying and defending and so forth you stay at this spinning level of reactivity and you don't go to that place of wisdom and what someone who meets you with equanimity can do is take to the place of straight sanity you know, cause and effect it's up to you there's no blame here this is where it's going. Think of it, see this clearly. I know you can see this clearly. And it's offering that. You know. Right. Just think about it. And there's no loss of presence, no loss of, of uh, empathy. Just, it's, you know. But uh, a sense of real, real concern for the person. But trust that it's up to you. Can you can figure? You can work this out for yourself. You're not a bad person. Uh, just see cause and effect. How where these energies go? And he said, actually, he's telling me that's when I stopped. At that moment, I saw what, what's happening, and I was taken to a place where I could stop. He stopped. Just in the nick of time, it's happened. So it's really, you know, things like equanimity seems like, can seem like, uh, you know, just going along with everything, accepting everything, and all fine, it's all one. But it, that, that isn't. It's a very bright, it supports wisdom. It's not stupid. It's not, not condoning anything but it's taking us through our reactive places to that place of clarity. And it's both supporting wisdom and it comes from wisdom because it realises that as a human being we've got all kinds of crazy stuff going, all kinds of crazy potentials going, but dealt with or, or met in the right way we will come to our wisdom. We will get to that place. We'll find that. And this is what, uh, why this is innately possible for us to realize, you know, what the Dhamma is about. Otherwise, you know, there'd be no, you know, if it's just another ism that you've got to believe in, why bother?
the sense of revealing truth, clarity, openness, emptiness, freedom. So, I mean, life, as I say very often, I'm finding life is just, uh, the word that comes to me is is humbling. (laughs) As I sense there's kind of less and less things I can do, or I realize never was many things I could do, and now I'm actually owning up to it. Um, (laughs) Things I don't know, things I don't know answers to, uh, but having put aside that sort of bluff and bluster and one comes to a place of being able to meet life as it happens uh, with uh, openness and uh, interest and compassion. There's nothing to lose. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to gain. Anyone 